Well, I got to take you back a little bit and recap because, as you may remember, we started out the year, <clears throat> pardon me, talking about the process by which the promises of God actually happen in our lives. And the theme that we introduced back on January 8th was aim low. Aim low. It may not sound too inspiring, but I'll just get to that in a moment. Uh, but then the week after that, of course, we kind of casted our vision for the, for the fast, the 40-day fast. The week after that, Pastor Spencer brought a wonderful message about fresh faith. And then last week, of course, we uh, talked about missions, what God is doing there. And so some necessary things we want to touch on. But uh, that wasn't to drift away from this aim low th- uh, theme, which uh, these different topics relate to by all means. But we're going to get back on that this morning as we talk about various things that the Lord, I think, is calling us to in our own lives at the beginning of the new year to really help us step into what he has for us. You may recall we talked about the fact that when Israel was delivered by God out of slavery in Egypt, he brought them to a land of abundance. And God said now to Joshua, I said, listen, I'm not going to drive out all the occupants in one year. Because if I did that, the crops would fail, you know, all the places that you couldn't be would just collapse, it would become a desert. He said this, but I will drive them out a little at a time. Until when? Until your population is increased and you're able to fill the land. Jesus invites you and me into a life of abundance. We'll see a bit more of what that really is. But he invites us, John 10.10, into an abundant life. One of the reasons why a lot of Christians tend to kind of sit back after a while, whether it's through discouragement or apathy, is they just see all the things that they feel like they should be or could be, but they're not, and so we get discouraged. We're kind of, oh. And we, we miss a very simple biblical uh, principle in which God is saying, listen, you can see all that's out there, all that I has for, have for you, but you need to understand to walk in the Spirit is to walk in obedience step by step. Little by little, as my child, I will drive the enemy's presence and influence out of your life, out of your relationships, out of any area where he comes to destroy, decay, whatever. I will do that bit by bit as you walk with me in the things that I am showing you. You will grow, as the scripture says, from freedom to freedom, from strength to strength. But you have to begin to take those steps. You have to determine that you are going to grow little by little. What that means is you have to determine that you're not only going to hear about but you're going to actually do those little things that I'm showing you to do and I'm calling you to do right here, right now. Now, don't raise your hand, but we are in the month of February, and how many could raise their hand and say, yeah, you know, there's certain things in January, January 1 that I really feel like I need to start doing, and I haven't done them yet, right? So it's not that a lot of times that we don't know what it is we need to do. We just sometimes think, well, but it seems so small, so consequential is it really a big deal if I do it or not and the Lord says yes it is in other words listen you have to start you have to start you know what I'm talking to you about you know what I'm addressing in your life so the Lord says I want you to start now start small and I want you to keep it simple so we talked about this theme of aim low but aiming low should not be confused with low ambition aiming low still means aim high but Take it in small bites. In other words, the Lord will show you what he wants to bring you into, what he wants to do in certain areas of your life, but then he gives you a strategy, bit by bit. Do this or stop doing this or start, whatever the case may be, and as we do that, we begin to see more and more and more expansion of what it is the Lord wants to do in our lives. 
we mentioned as well last time that when God brought his people to the land of promise, the land of Canaan, land of, land of Canaan it was actually measurable 300,000 square miles. Massive territory for that people. And yet by the time they finally obeyed, entered in, and then decided to stop, they had actually only conquered or occupied about 3,000 square miles. So 1% of what it is God had for them. And when you read the word of God, it'd be curious just to, just to go before the Lord yourself and say, Lord, when I read your word or sense in my heart all that you did for me, where am I today in comparison to where I could be in you? To all that you've possessed for me, all that you conquered for me, where am I? Am I growing in that 300,000 square miles? Or have I settled for years in 30 miles, 300 miles, 3,000 miles, whatever it may be? The Bible says in 2 Peter 1, will you read this with me? <clears throat> Jesus has given us everything we need to live and to serve God. So what I wanted to do at the beginning of this new year is I want to look at some of the spiritual disciplines or some of the spiritual tools that God has provided for you and me to guarantee success in our life. As we'll see in a moment, it's not success in the way the world always thinks of success, but the way he's guaranteeing success in our life and in our ministry. Now, a lot of us don't like that word discipline. You've heard me say this many times before, but I'll say for those who've not heard. But the word discipline is not synonymous with drudgery. Discipline has to do with mastery. It has to do with being able to do through training what maybe you cannot do right now through trying. Does that make sense? There's lots of things we'd like to do. I'd love to go run 10K. Can't do it right now. But does that mean I can't do it? No. If I would begin to train in a matter of months, I will run 10K. Okay, I've done it before. Actually, five. Vanessa did 10. <laughs> she rocks. So it can be done. Okay? So in the same way with our walk with the Lord, there are things the Lord stirs in our heart. And a lot of times we don't do it because we feel like, well, I can't do that right now. So that must not be my gift. It must not be what God's asking of me. And it is what God's asking of you. What's he doing? He's saying, here's the dream I've put in your heart. Here's the calling I've placed upon you. Here's the anointing I have upon your life. Now I want you to begin to train yourself to do what is stirring in your heart. And so we're going to be looking at various things that we can do to begin to train ourselves, make sure these small things, these little things are nailed down in our lives, and we will be surprised at how much the Lord is actually doing, because the Lord wants us to occupy. And all that means is not, it doesn't mean just get in the land and sit there. To occupy is like the word occupation. It means that in different areas of my life, the Lord wants to be trained. So I can actually function in those areas with competency. I can understand how God intends that area of my life to work. And I can experience abundance in that area because I am walking in the principles and the values that God has revealed to me and I'm learning to grow. Well, this morning I want to talk to us about the Bible, the Word of God. I know a lot of us are already thinking, oh, I know, I know, we've already heard that. Well, I'm going to share a couple of things you may not have heard, but I think will be helpful to you. Our scripture is 2 Timothy. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. And I'd like us to read this together and read it nice and loud, okay? 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And by man of God, he means person of God, man, woman, the same thing. The point is this. The word of God needs to be central to our lives if we're going to walk with God. This may sound simple, but I believe it's absolutely true. You cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ if you do not read the word of God. It just cannot happen. You can believe things about him. You can hear things and agree with that, but you cannot follow him. Jesus said, my sheep, those who follow me, they hear my voice. They hear my voice, and my voice speaks through my word, which is a lie. If the word of God does not get into you personally, you will always live by a secondhand revelation. You will always be inspired, encouraged by what somebody else says, but eventually it's like water off a duck's back. The Lord, as Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1, I pray that God would give to you a spirit of revelation, that you would know things for yourself that no one can take away from you, that will actually be inside of you. They will become part of your spiritual DNA. They will work their way out of you. You see, the Bible says that we are meant to be living epistles, read by all men. What that means is that as the word of God gets into you and you submit to his word, you become more like Christ. You walk in his word. What happens? You become living scripture. You become a manifestation like Jesus, the Logos, the word of God in flesh. You become like that and people are able to say, and this might sound like a stretch, but I really believe it because Paul is saying as well that if you get the word of God in you and the word of God shapes you, people will know what Jesus is like by looking at you. And it's not just by a lifestyle. It will manifest in, in a lifestyle in one aspect, but it will also manifest by words that you speak. You speak words of hope. You speak words of faith. You speak words of truth. By decisions that you make, how you go against the flow in certain things because culture says this is what you do, but because the word is alive and in you, you say, no, 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 I don't walk that way. I walk this way. Because you see, the world is deceived by the world's spirit. I walk in the spirit of truth. That's why I walk this way. Not just to be hard to get along with, right? But God says, this is the way, walk in it. As for me and my house, we're going this way. Why does our life work? We're walking with God. We're allowing the word of God to shape us, to, to round off the roughage. We're allowing the word of God to crucify our flesh so we can submit to one another, love one another. We can, we can see how life is intended to work. That's what the word of God is intended to do. Now, one reason why it's so important that the word of God be central in our lives is because we live in a day today in Western culture where I would say a lot of Christians possess what I would call pop theology. What pop theology very simply is, it's a belief in God, but when push comes to shove, I essentially either do what I want to do and I justify it, or else I do what is culturally popular, right? Rather than what the word of God says. So again, it's not the same thing. The Lord wants us to know his word. Pop culture has to do with beliefs and behaviors that fluctuate all the time. They basically change according to cultural norms or cultural pressures. Now, when we talk about the word of God, we tend to talk most about the power of God's word. That's a wonderful thing. But I want to share two things with you along with that that I hope will be an encouragement to you, but will also help to better equip you when it comes to conversations you have with people who might question actually the validity of God's word when you're sharing God's word. They may foo-foo it or dismiss it because they say, oh, that, that's just whatever. 
Two things I want to talk about. The first one is that the Bible is a reliable document. Second, the Bible is respected literature. And third, the Bible is a power-filled book. So the first one is this. The Bible is a reliable document. Now, for most of us here this morning, we probably believe that. We believe, okay, it's God's word. I believe that it's reliable. But most people you talk to today, when it comes to the Bible, we're not talking about as the word of God right now, okay? We're talking about as a document. Most people in our culture today would say, well, the Bible is just a collection of people's opinions down through the years. Hear me, friends. The Bible's not relevant today because the topics we're dealing with today, right, all the sexual things, all the, you know, variations of things, right? And the progressive church, I mean, it, it tries to be compassionate. We need to embrace everything. But the problem is what you're doing is, is you're just condoning and embracing brokenness. But you're not bringing healing. You see, Jesus doesn't condemn us in our sin. Jesus came to seek out and to save those of us who are lost, but he comes to heal and restore. That's why he brings truth to every situation. That's why we need to know what the Lord says and let the Lord's word be the standard, not in a legalistic way that kills and, and that condemns, but in a way that offers hope and life that says, yes, I see where you are. I see what you're doing. I know what you believe, but there's a better way. You can be healed. You can be whole. You can be holy. You can be pure. You can be who God made you to be. And not what this world spirit is trying to squeeze you into because the world spirit has one aim. That is to lie and steal and kill and destroy. Jesus said, I came to give you life. But I need people who are living in it to model it and people in whom it is getting into their life so that they can actually minister in the power of the truth of God's word with love and humility, but also with righteousness and with truth. Righteousness is, is not, again, spiritual legalism. It's just right living. This is how you live right. This is how life works. And so the Bible is a reliable document. It's not just a collection of people's opinions. And people who believe that don't understand that the Bible itself is the miraculous book if for no other reason than just how it came to be. Do you realize, here's something you can tuck in the back of your mind. The Bible is made of 66 books. These 66 books have been written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors. And it wasn't just Uncle Bill and his brother and grandmother. You know, it wasn't all in the family. These were 40 different authors who lived over 1,500 years in three different continents, in three different languages. And yet there is one unified theme in this book from beginning to end without contradiction. That is an absolute miracle. If nothing to do with, it has to do with God, obviously, but if you took God out of the equation, just as a document, it is absolutely reliable. Add to that, there are literally hundreds of prophecies in this book written hundreds and thousands of years ago about people and events and places, all that you can imagine, historical events. And they've all come true. There are still some yet to be fulfilled, but those that were fulfilled have been fulfilled to the very detail, defying all odds. And they are actually verified and documented by historical evidence in other nations in other times. 
So again, it's not just something that man has made up. We believe because we see through the word of God actually or through these things I just mentioned that there must be divine origin for it actually all this to come together. Now, when I talk about the Bible as a trustworthy document, what I'm speaking to the question is this. How can I trust this book that I hold in my hand today that it is still what the original authors wrote and it isn't something that just changed down through the ages? How can I know that this book is accurate? And friends, we need to know that as well because hear me, we know all the craziness going on in our culture today. We know all the things that are plaguing our culture, and many sincere Christians think they're doing our world a service by embracing all that and changing the Scripture. You are not. Listen, you may sound like you're outdated. You might sound like you're old-fashioned, but I promise you what the Lord wants to do, as I said earlier, is he wants to bring people out of that brokenness. This word is the word of hope. We can't water it down. If we do, we do so to our own destruction and worse, to a culture that desperately needs the power and the truth of God's word. So our culture tends to think that, you know, you really can't rely on the Bible because it's so old. They kind of think it's like, remember the old telephone game? That was, that's hilarious. Go home and try it. You need more than two or three people. You need like 20 people, right? We're at a party or something. So what do you do? Let's say I'm on the end of the line. I start. Well, I have something written on a piece of paper. It might be by like, you know, Uncle Bill Ben goes to Mary Brown's in his 1980 Chevy to pick up, you know, chicken and a Coke. So that's my sentence. I whisper that to the first person beside me. He whispers to the next person so nobody else hears. And by the time that, that message is whispered down to the very last person, whatever they heard last, they say out loud. And everybody has a good laugh because it's just completely out to left field, totally different from what was originally said. Now, that's how a lot of people actually look at the word of God. They say there's no way we can rely on what this book says. It must be outdated because it's so old. How do we know we have what the original authors intended or even what they wrote for that sake? Well, the truth is the accuracy of the Bible is nothing short of miraculous, especially when you compare it to writings of antiquity from the same era or even more recent. For example, we have the writings of two philosophers from the fourth century BC. So 2,400 years ago, their names were Plato and Aristotle. Anybody recognize those names? Right? If you don't just raise your hand, you look smart. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was just reading Plato this morning. Now Plato and Aristotle, 2,400 years ago, None of their original writings still exist, okay? What we call the autograph copies. They no longer exist. The most recent copy we have of what they ever wrote. So in other words, the original doesn't exist. What do we have? A copy of 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 a copy down the road. The oldest one we have that's closest to the original writing of Plato, for example, actually goes back to 900 A.D., so we're talking 1,100 years ago is the oldest one we can find, but here's the key point. The oldest one we can find, the closest one we can find to the original is actually 1,200 years old. Are you following me? Plato's original writing, copied, 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 the closest thing we have to that is 1,200 years old. And yet nobody ever quotes Plato or Aristotle saying, well, Plato is reported to have said, but we can't really rely on him, 
So here it goes for what it's worth. Nobody ever says that, right? People get up and they wax eloquent on the writings of Plato and Aristotle, no questions asked. And yet the closest proximity is 1,200 years. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but just to give you an example, 1,200 years. Compare that to the Bible. Plato, Aristotle, 4th century B.C., New Testament, 50 to 100 A.D. The oldest manuscripts we have of copies of the original New Testament writings are not 1,200 years from the original. They're only 200 to 300 years away from the original writing. Now, not only are they young in that way, two to 300 years removed from the original, but with Plato, we only have seven copies going back to 900, as far as we can go back, 900 AD, only seven copies. Aristotle from 1100 AD, we only have five copies, 12 copies combined. Now, get this. Not only is Scripture so much closer, two to 300 years to the original, we have over 5,000 manuscripts around the world of those original scriptures or the copies that are only a couple hundred years old. Add to that in the fourth century, another 8,000 copies were made and translated into Latin. So what does that mean? It means we have more than 13,000 copies of early scripture that you can compare together from around the world and they all say the same thing. No contradiction, no discrepancy. They say exactly the same thing. Well, you may say, well, Pastor, why in the world then do we quote Aristotle and believe, you know, Plato, no questions asked, but people don't accept the Bible? It's because the Bible speaks to moral and spiritual issues that if we acknowledge, then we realize we're accountable to. But if I don't want to be accountable, what do I do? I have to try to dismiss the authenticity or the reliability of the scriptures. Does that make sense? So we're still not talking about it as the word of God. We know that, but just in the sense of a document. Well, the second point is the Bible is respected literature. Respected literature. The Bible is actually an historical document that is recognized the world over as being an accurate record of, of ancient civilizations, peoples, all the stories that we read about. It's just like a history book that you would find in your library, right? We would find some writer, some topic written maybe a few hundred years ago with something that happened 2,000 years ago. We check it out. We do our study. Hey, that's our opinion. Now, a lot of times human historical books have a certain bias, right? Kind of depends who won the war, what perspective. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is that you just get it, blah. You get David's sin. You get his conquest. You get, you know, the frailties of people. You get all the warts and all the beauty, Right? God is just saying, this is what it is, okay? And yet, through all of that, we see a beautiful story of redemption. But the Bible is an historical book, just like other books we read today. It is not a once-upon-a-time fairy tale. The Bible contains stories about real people and real events that happened in real time. Now, what skeptics have done over the years, and you can Google this yourself, but what skeptics have done quite often is they've said, for example, say somebody who lives in the 1700s or 1800s or 1900s or whatever, they'll say, well, we read in the Bible a certain city or a certain people or a certain event, and we have no record of that to our knowledge. So therefore, and this is human arrogance, right? Therefore, it must be made up. But what do you do? You give it a little bit of time, and archaeologists dig up another city. 
another stone tablet. More information, and what does it do? It verifies what the Bible has unapologetically declared for thousands of years, right? For example, there were people who said for years that Israel was never in slavery in Egypt, that Israel was never captives in Babylon. That was just kind of Jewish folklore. That's just something the Jewish people made up, part of their history, kind of, you know, embellished a little bit, whatever. And, and really, you almost couldn't argue, other than saying, well, we have it in God's word, and we believe that's what it is. Well, in 1879, archaeologists actually found what is called the cylinder of Cyrus the Great, okay, a king who lived back in those days, you may remember. And on that cylinder, which is basically a clay cylinder, there are many of them, but this particular one, it's clay, and so sketched in that clay is an actual historical event that's being described. What was described on this particular cylinder was the fact that not only did Cyrus actually conquer Babylon, but after having conquered Babylon, he made the surprising decision to allow all the captives to return to their homelands and to rebuild their own temples, which is what the Bible has said for thousands of years. The exact same thing. So we see that the Bible is respected as literature. It's also respected as literature for its moral influence. You see, the Bible not only is positive in its influence to those who believe and follow Jesus, just its values alone, if they were embraced by a culture, by a society, what does God's word do? The values and truths of God's word actually elevate an entire society. And we see the residue of that even in our own nation. Horace Greeley was an American newspaper editor and publisher in the late 1800s. He said this about the Bible. He said, it is impossible to enslave mentally or socially a Bible-reading people. The principles of the Bible are the groundwork of human freedom. It is impossible to enslave mentally or spiritually a Bible-reading people. Why? Because you just know Bible stories? No. When you read the Bible, you begin to understand who you are. You begin to understand your value, the value of the other person. You begin to understand that there's all these different things. And that is why it is no coincidence under any totalitarian regime around the world and here in our own nation, it is not a coincidence that the word of God is attacked. It is not a coincidence that the word of God has been eliminated from any sector of society that it possibly can. It's not a coincidence that the word of God is viewed as being uh, hate speech. We know it's not hate speech. It's about love and restoration and healing. But what's the problem? The word of God gives people hope. The word of God says you're not just one of the mass. You're not just lemons who run off a cliff when the government tells you to. You're individual thinking people who go by facts, who go by details, who can look at evidence and say, this is a lie. This is truth. We will not do this. We will do this. We will stand up for those who are oppressed. I'm getting preaching here. But we will stand up for those who have no voice. You can't do that in a totalitarian government. You've got to shut down that voice. You've got to shut down that people. Don't go there, Paul. But you've got to shut that stuff down. Friends, we are not political people. We are involved in the political process, but I'll tell you this. We are supposed to be people of the spirit and people of the truth. We are supposed to be people who discern truth from lies and say, hey, we can see this, we can see that, but whoa, 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 this isn't right. We're going to stand against this. We're not standing against people. People aren't our enemies. But what's our enemy is the spirit of darkness that's trying to destroy our culture and destroy our children. 
and going after our children, right? And that's why we as the people of God have to be in the word of God. Why? So that when we speak, we're not just one that's caught up in the masses and social media and just parroting what we saw in the latest video. We're actually people who are hearing what God is saying to this generation, what God is saying to us, what his heart is, so we can actually speak truth, but we can speak truth with grace, with love. We're not fighting in the same spirit, right? We're a different kind of people because the word of God, the living word is in us. Anyway, I'll just, uh, but I just want us to understand, again, we're called to be people of truth, and we can't be if we're not in the word. In fact, I'll tell you this much. If you're not in the word, you've got to be in the word, because if you're on social media, if you're on YouTube, whatever the issues may be of our day, I'm susceptible as much as you are, if you're not careful you will get caught up in the wrong spirit. You might even be right, but your attitude's wrong. And you will miss, you're missing the battle, right? So we need the word of God to be the priority so we can discern and in all things we can move in the right spirit and be a part of what God is doing. Not be part of a pseudo movement, right? That has the appearance of righteousness, but it's in the flesh. It's such a, you know, a, a, a tightrope thing. But the word of God will be our guide. It has to be a priority in our life. The Lord will keep you in the right way if you make his word priority. Thomas Huxley was a devout atheist. He was also known as Darwin's bulldog. And yet he even acknowledged the absolute necessity of the word of God in our culture and how good it was at approving lives. He said this, the Bible has been the Magna Carta of the poor and the oppressed. The human race is not in a position to dispense with it. You see, everywhere Huxley went, he taught that people, um, that people evolved from animals. But get this, when you read his writings, he taught that people evolved from animals, but he didn't want people living like animals. So he was actually a great proponent of scripture being taught in public schools. Because even though he said, I don't want them taught that they come from God, I don't want them taught that they're accountable to God, I recognize our children need the values in this document for the literature that it is. It had great value. So I thought that was kind of interesting. The Bible's a reliable document. The Bible's respected literature. And finally, the Bible is a power-filled book. What did Paul say? All scripture is breathed out by God. It's not merely a book. There's life in this. This is alive. Napoleon Bonaparte said toward the end of his reign, he described the Bible as a living creature. This thing's alive. It will talk to you. Just a thought came to mind. It's funny. I guess I'm just traditional. I don't know if you're like me. I can't put anything on this. You ever lay something in your Bible? It's like, whoa, <laughs> you know. Went for my phone once. No, 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 phone. <laughs> I don't, maybe it's old-fashioned. I mean, I'll write in it, I'll mark it up, I'll memorize it, but it's just kind of like, man, this is the word of God. Nothing goes on this. So I mean, that's just a little freebie anyway. That's just kind of a, I'm probably just old-fashioned. But it's the word of God to us. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, getting back to the story of Joshua, one of the things we see that is the same spirit of God that told Israel to go occupy the land, by that same spirit, he's also calling you and me to occupy. He's calling us to move into some new things this year or even maybe this week. But the Lord says this is how you're going to do it. 
Okay, remember we talked at the outset how there are things that God wants to possess, occupy, learn how to live, control, master certain things. The Lord says to us as well, like he said to Israel, this is how you do it. You read Joshua 1 and 8 with me. He said, the, law, the book of the law, God's word, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The success that God intended for Joshua, and he intends for you and me, is entirely dependent on you and me locking into the scriptures. You see, the word of God is an anchor. It's an anchor for my faith. I get established in life when the word of God is in me, part of my life. But the word of God is not just an anchor. The word of God is also alive. It is a stimulus to move me. You see, it's one thing to know what I believe. It's one thing to have theology. It's another thing to actually walk in what I believe. That's why he says, meditate in it day and night, devour it, consume it, get it into your heart, understand it. And then he says, but blessed are those who do it, who do it. And as you do the word, you begin to discover that you start to take territory, you start to advance, and you start to move forward. He says, true success is what really makes a difference, is, is, is what makes a difference in your life and the lives around you. You see, what the Lord wants us to have is a living faith, not just something we believe, not just apologetics that we can answer. He wants to have a faith that is alive. And friends, I say this all in my heart with all sincerity. My own test as a pastor of success has nothing to do with how many people I speak to on a Sunday morning. It has to do with in how many people is the word of God coming alive. How many people are discovering God's will for their lives? are drawing closer to the Lord, are walking in obedience to the Lord. To me, that is the measure. We've said it many, many times, and I don't mean it's a cliche. It's not about a big church. It's about big people in the church. Like Gerhard Dutoit said many, many years ago, it's about a church being full of people who are full of God. That's the goal. That's what the Lord has for all of us. Joshua, God said, if you get into the word, you will have success. Let me close with this scripture. Well, scripture in the story. Matthew 7, read it with me. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Friends, the real test of your faith and mine is not what we profess to believe. It's what you do when the storm comes. It's what you do when the pressures of life come your way. It's what you do when the enemy says, oh, God's never going to fulfill that promise, so go this way, right? Did God really mean? Did God really say? And so, so off we go. That's where I believe the real test of our faith comes. And when you get God's word worked into your life, there is a strength that not only gets you through whatever that storm may be, but there's also an opportunity for God to, to produce even greater things out of that storm than you ever could have imagined. You see, we don't just repeat empty cliches when we read the word of God. We breathe in the life of God from that word, and we prove it when the, when the storms come. You see, when I prepare for a typical message on a Sunday, there's certain academic work you have to do. Anybody that's in any field where you're presenting, you know, preparing a, a presentation. 
So you look at the text, you look at context, you maybe look at the original language, you, you know, these different things that you look at. Look at some commentaries to see if you're way out to left field or whatever. But the most important thing I can do when I prepare for a Sunday is just this. Right? What are you saying? There's life in this book. Because you see, I don't know who's going to be here on a Sunday. I don't know what needs are represented. I don't know what folks have gone through, but the Holy Spirit does. And he can drop things into your heart. And what I'm saying of me is, is true of you. Because we are all living epistles who go from this place into the workplace and touch people I will never see, but you will see. And God has a word for them. God has something to speak to them. God has an answer for them. And so what do I do? I breathe in the word. And then I stand here on Sunday. And just breathe out the word. And what do you do? You inhale that word. And that word becomes life to you. I've thought of it more than often. I think any preacher has. Paul talks about the foolishness of preaching. Now, he's not saying foolish preaching, but the foolishness of preaching. There's times I thought, man, what am I doing? Like, these people must have better things to do than listen to me. And it just doesn't make sense. You know, we worship, a guy gets up here and talks to us. What's the point? Well, there's no point if that person hasn't breathed in something from the Lord. And I don't know how many times, and it's so encouraging, but how many times somebody says, Pastor, you won't believe it, that exact scripture I was reading this morning before I came to church, or I was reading this week, last Monday I read that God gave me that same message you just spoke. And I want to say, why didn't you tell me? You would have saved me a lot of work. Just call me on Monday. Here's what the Lord said. But that's what the Lord desires for all of us. That's why when you read the word, you're not just having devotions. You're growing in your devotion to a person, to God who speaks to you. How many of you have had the, uh, the occasion? I'm sure we all have, but you, know, you read something in God's word, maybe that morning or maybe a few days before, and then you just bang into a situation and the Holy Spirit just reminds you of that word. And that becomes life to that person you're talking to. You see, it applies the same for all of us. I'm gonna ask the worship team to join me. There was a man named uh, Sidney Bedslow. Sidney was 107 years old and he was made the honorary uh, mayor of his small community in, in Alabama. Greatly loved, greatly respected, 107 years old. But Sidney wasn't always that way. Up until the age of 85, he was actually an alcoholic, a drunk, and a womanizer. Cheated on his wife over and over and over again. She had grounds almost every year to scripturally just divorce this guy. But she loved Jesus, and she believed that God could change her husband. Continued to love him, continued to pray for him. 85 years old before he changes. What happened? When he was in his early 80s, she was in her late 70s, she went blind. Now, she faithfully read God's word. She was a witness to her husband day after day. And when she went blind, she said, honey, she said, I, the blindness is difficult, but what I miss the most is I can't read God's word. Would you read the Bible for me? And he thought to himself, that's the least I can do for what I put this woman through. And so he read the Bible to her every single day for three years. And then finally one day he said, honey, I can't read this book anymore. I've got to submit my life to it. Would you pray with me? I want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. And she led him to the Lord at the age of 85. That is the power of God's word. 
It is powerful enough to give strength to a woman to literally live through hell because of her love for Jesus and the determination that God she knew was able to change her husband. It was a book that was powerful enough to change an alcoholic, a man who was womanized until he's 85 years old, and yet he got into the word finally through his wife, and it changed his heart, it melted his heart, it washed away his sin, and made him into someone that became someone that the town wanted to honor because they'd come to so love him and respect him. That's the power of the word of God. And that's what God wants to get into you and me. And I want to encourage you this morning that if you don't read the Bible, we're going to talk more about this in these next few weeks, I want to encourage you to begin. And if you do read the Bible, I want to encourage you to go a little bit deeper. What I mean by that is I'm all for read a chapter a day. I'm all for read through the Bible in a year. That's wonderful. But there's so much more. The Lord wants to bring you and me to a place, like I say, where it's not just having devotions, but where we are devoted to a person. And we sit in the Lord's presence with the word open. And the Lord may just have one scripture he wants to get our attention to memorize, meditate, chew on, and do. Or the Lord may say, I just want you to sit here for the next hour and just read 10, 12, 15, or just read. Just read. And you begin to have a love for the word. You see, you see more of the picture and the stories and all that's being read. You, you better understand what's going on. You just, you just have a love for the word. And I, I want to encourage you to grow in that as well. Thanks for listening to the GT Moncton podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to get the sermon as soon as it's released. If you have any questions or want to get connected, go to gtmoncton.com. For live streams and other videos, check out the GT Moncton YouTube channel and follow us on social media at GT Moncton to stay up to date on what's going on. God bless.